It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOT podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at cboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at cboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lookabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. So we're here today with Joshua Duran, and we're going to talk about a, I'll say a little known area of psychology. So you've got your jury psychology, clinical psychology, sports psychology, of course, industrial organizational psychology, and we also have space psychology. So space psychology is not the psychology of open spaces or putting space between things necessarily. Joshua, what exactly, what is space psychology? What's the broad view for our listeners So yeah, uh, space psychology is an amalgamation of a couple of disciplines, mainly psychiatry, cognition, IO psychology, as you mentioned, and something called human factors engineering, which is basically how does the body correspond with its environments. And so what I like to think of it as, in other words, it's space psychology is the study of the mind, the body and how it responds to the immediate environment within space. And space psychology also addresses a few of the five human spaceflight hazards that uh, affect this delicate system, specifically isolation, confinement, and extreme environments, which will be commonly referred to as ice environments. And with ice environments, there's a quote. So back, and, and again, I'm going to mispronounce a bunch of names, but obviously there have been many countries that have been in space and have, uh, we have a long history of cooperating with other countries. So I'll mess up. There's some Russian names, but there's an interesting quote here. There were two astronauts in a space flight, Soyuz and Salyut. Does that ring a bell? Yes. Soyuz. Yeah. Okay. So Interpersonal conflict is characterized, and I guess this is how one of these astronauts uh, characterized it. All the conditions necessary for murder are met (laughs) if you shut two men in a cabin measuring 18 feet by 20 and leave them together for two months. I'm sorry. Yeah. So that was from that's a quote from crew member and cosmonaut Valerie Ryuman. What do you Uh, think? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, being in such a confined space is bound to have conflict, which is one of my uh, research topics, uh, not only teamwork and cohesion, but conflict, which is the other side of that coin. And like you mentioned, early space exploration, these, these teams found that social support was one of the, uh, one of the main ingredients in order for a successful mission. And this was found early in in space exploration studies. Let's see, early space. I'm looking at my notes. So like early explorers such as, and I'm going to mispronounce this too, Fritoff Nansen, an 18th century explorer, was the first to employ a scientific approach to expedition planning 
and he recognized that human factors were vital to his success. Things like task commitment, uh, interpersonal attraction, and group pride, uh, which all these culminate into team cohesion. And when there is a lack of it, you get that conflict. It's interesting when you look at something I learned is when you look at NASA, their requirements for astronauts are, I mean, you're looking at they're going into, you know, they're going to Alaska and having to live for for weeks there to to make sure that they can live together. Okay, because these these space flights, A, they're not cheap and B, they're not the safest thing to send somebody up in in a rocket and in a shuttle. And then again, we're looking at the at the not only the the international space station which is soon to be retired but also now looking into lunar base missions so the psychological requirements i mean you think about this in general hiring for you know an organization where somebody might go through some kind of a psychological assessment for leadership leadership competencies and we could talk mm-hmm. about those forever but what is required for astronauts, it's interesting because your private companies, like your Blue Origins, your SpaceX's, they don't have these stringent requirements for their astronauts, likely because they don't have that. That's not that's not what they're looking necessarily at doing per se. Plus, they don't have that long history of everything set in place. So when you look at the differences in that, it's interesting because in the future, aren't your Blue Origins? your SpaceX's and NASA going to be working together and maybe have some of the same people on the same team in these confined spaces? Or is that not going to happen because of the difference, obviously, private versus government and NASA won't want to take somebody who hasn't been vetted, even though they're qualified, even though they've made done space missions, they haven't pass the tests, the psychological tests? How would NASA approach something like that? Good question. So I think what we're seeing now is a lot of companies, or I say a lot, um, a few companies are becoming that mediator between NASA or government agencies exclusive to space exploration and these privatized corporations who want to go out and commercialize, whether that be for recreation or for industrial purposes of of spaceflight. And what we're seeing is this mediating company who can pull the best of both worlds because they're still a private corporation, but they're able to access that data and that the sciences that are almost exclusive to, to government agencies such as NASA and other academia that are focused exclusively on those uh, stringent topics such as spaceflight, isolation, and what have you. And it's interesting. So now, now that you mentioned that, when you look at the the data, we do there is some publicly available data, and we're talking about that. So we, you know, we're if you look in the show notes, if you're listening to this podcast, you'll see a couple some references to the articles, books that we're using for this. So there there is stuff that's publicly available, and most of these articles, when you look at them, it'll say right away look there it's this is us government uh research there is no copyright so it can be shared although there might be some international restrictions on it so it's it's interesting because when you look at spacex spacex was originally developed <laughs> that business was created because they wanted to be able to you know kind of like the uh 
instead of a Lexus going into space, they wanted it, uh, a Honda to go into space because it's how can we get payloads up there cheaper for mm-hmm. industry? Because they're sending satellites up there. They're sending all kinds of things up there. So that's the reason they were developed by Musk in the first place was, hey, we just want to be able to do this at a fraction of the cost that it would cost a, the government and B, any competitors that may arise. And now they're they're of course, because they have the options, once they, they're getting it right to work on that, okay, now we can send Amanda Mars. Now we can send people into orbit and charge them a very small fee, I would say, Joshua, <laughs> to, uh, to go and explore space as a, a, a civilian or someone who's not being contracted to do work. Yeah, um, you mentioned small fee. That's definitely out of my out of my funds, out of my budget. But in the future, I'm hoping that future generations will be allowed or be able to contribute to spaceflight, whether that be uh, recreational purposes or adapting—not adapting, but uh, improving, advancing our our culture, our civilization, uh, because um, it's in our it's in our genes to explore. You've heard the terminology space, the final frontier. Whether or not I believe it, that's the final frontier. It's definitely the one that is least known about. And um, I'm excited to step into that role. Side note, because we like to take tangents here on the podcast. What is, I I mean, okay, we know the answer to this question, but it can't, I can't not say this. How much, what do they say? We know Five percent of the of the ocean, and when you look at the the charts in terms of depths, how deep the it, the ocean actually goes, and mm-hmm. it's interesting when you look at where the Titanic actually landed, it sinks, it lands. That's like I don't know one one thousandth of the depth of the actual ocean, and when there's like we, there's so much to explore down there, so. I don't even know if I have a question for <laughs> related to this, <laughs> but it just makes me think. It makes me ask a couple of questions, maybe to myself, because they're nearly impossible to answer. What you know, I'm asking like, what's easier to explore, space or the depths of the ocean? And then I think, well, you can easily go higher into space with less restrictions X, Y, Z than down to the ocean, just simply because of pressurization issues and whatnot. Anything that comes to mind with this? Yeah, absolutely. Um... When I first heard this this data point, I was you know shocked because they say that ninety five percent of the ocean has been completely unexplored, and that seems absurd because it's right below our feet essentially. But we know more about space than we do our own backyard, which is oh crazy. yeah, because you can see into space, we can't see into the ocean. <laughs> exactly. All right, I never. All right, thanks. I'm glad I mentioned it because. Now that's more to think about. How far do you, do you have any idea? How far can we see the, with, oh, with man. telescopes? How many millions of, of light years? Yeah, with the addition to uh, the new telescope, I'm blanking on it. Is it the James Webb telescope? I know it's advancing our our ability to see further out, but as far as what the observable universe, I'm sure that's done more with with data as opposed to an observable telescope. Do you know what I mean? Tell me more. So they use, uh, so this is definitely out of my scope, but they use actual sciences. They use predictability of uh, planet, planetary knowledge and to, to come up with these 
not hypothesis, but to come up with these assumptions of, of what's going on out there. And they tend to be accurate. Needless to say, that's entirely different than, you know, putting up a telescope and saying, you know, this is absolute, this is what's going on. So I think those are just two different things. So when you're saying, you know, how far can we see in space? I think it just depends on the instruments. So that makes me parallel in my brain psychology because we can't observe things that haven't happened yet, but we can use models of correlation and prediction exactly to identify things, make sense of things, and then prediction models, for example, to say, will this leader, will this person be successful in this particular role? Where the same thing, they're using the data to say, hey, based on what we can observe about the planets and movement and all, all these crazy things, we can assume with some kind of degree of accuracy what's going on beyond what's observable. Exactly. And planetary sciences is a whole nother realm. It's a whole nother beast, something that I would love to, to grasp at some point in my lifetime, but there's just a whole lot of uh, sciences and mathematics going into it. But the implications are astronomical, pun intended. <laughs> pun intended. What I want to, I, I guess we'll do a little bit of a, a, a teaser here for what we're going to talk about in the next episode. What we're going to get into is there's different types of, of, of missions. And this, and so we're looking at one, one particular study. We're going to get into that where you've got duration type. And the reason it makes me think of that, we heard about, you know, the conditions are right, perfect for murder. If you put two men in an 18 by 20 room for a month, many people might think of that in their workspace where, all right, I can get away. I'm not in a isolated, confined and extreme environment with my, with my workmates. However, it sometimes feel like that feels like that because they're in my head all the time. And that's the most confined workspace <laughs> that I can think of when in my head, when I'm not at work, they're in my head, but we'll, we'll in the next episode, we'll get into mission types. Cause you've got, basically it's broken down into six, 12 and 12 to 36 months, depending on low orbit, low earth orbit, deep space exploration, uh, or deep, deep space exploration. And what we're also going to get into is competencies for astronauts in terms of job analysis, in terms of what's actually needed to be successful on those missions. And we can, we'll start to parallel how that plays in to the actual workplace. For example, one quick thing for duration missions, six months, up to six months, low earth orbit, we're looking at the most imp important factors being teamwork, communication, adaptability. And when you're looking at those longer missions, the things that are important, number one, self-care, number two, technical, number three, small group living. So it'll, it's interesting to how do we look at the slice and dice it and do this Rubik's cube in our brain of what's important for the workplace here on earth versus what's important depending on different mission types so thank you everyone for listening be sure to hit subscribe that helps us out and we'll catch you on the next episode thank you thanks for listening to this episode of work cookie a seabock podcast don't forget to sign up at seabock.com that's s-e-b-o-c.com to engage with our community gain a sense of belonging access our other media 
and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? At seabock.com. 